Hi everyone, um, my name is Michael, I'm the pastor at Chapel Hill. I want to start by just uh, saying thank you to all our volunteers who helped out at our summer carols in the garden uh, yesterday. I thought it was a very successful event. Uh, we saw many locals um, and many friends and family come along. Uh, we had positive feedback from many people saying they felt really welcomed um, and they felt really comfortable uh, celebrating Christmas with us. So once again, thank you for all your hard efforts, all the little details that you were able to pick up on, the way you guys served and loved one another, and particularly our visitors. So thank you once again. Uh, if you're visiting uh, because you're here for the wreath making, welcome. Um, just to let you know, uh, we're also going to be serving bacon and egg rolls uh, for you guys as well. Uh, and so for the rest of us who aren't attending the wreath making, feel free to hang back at our garden area for some bacon and egg rolls. Uh, and so we've been going through the book of James as a church in the Faith That Works series. James shows us that Christianity is not an ethereal faith. It's not an outer worldly thing. No, Christianity has practical relevance to the nitty gritty details of our everyday lives. Last week, James showed us that real faith, a faith growing in godliness, and how that plays out in real community. Now, James shows us how real faith affects our calendar and schedules. Really practical stuff in regards to the Christian faith. So in the context of the last paragraph of chapter 4, and the next paragraph in chapter 5, which we'll look at next week, is wealth. So uh, it's in the context of looking at our schedules and calendars in our motivation to chase after wealth. James says, verse 13, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. The original audience that James was referring to were these traveling merchants who would move from place to place to establish those contracts, establish those trading relationships before moving on elsewhere. And so although we are not all traveling salesmen, I think what is relatable to all of us is that familiar language of everyday planning. Planning is a good and very necessary thing, particularly in our modern world that we live in. Most of us would not be able to function without a diary or our ever busy lifestyle means that we just have multiple commitments. And so to get on top of those multiple commitments, we need to plan uh, to get on top of those home life, work life commitments. And Amy and I, we've been really proud to design and make our own custom magnetic meal planner that sticks on the fridge so we can plan out our grocery shopping, so we can be better planned at doing hospitality better. Uh, maybe in summer, in our new series called Meals with Jesus, we might uh, offer that to you. But we've been really proud of that, and that's been a big moment for us in, in the new household. But there's a danger that we can fall into, which James says perhaps can be ungodly, and in his words, perhaps to be arrogant in the way we might go about our planning. The arrogance that we can have with our planning is thinking that once we plan something, it will happen. And James, he grabs a cold cup of water and he throws it into our faces and says, why? 
You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Splash! Some of us have a built-out, written-down plan for tomorrow. Maybe you're like me. Others have no idea on how they're going to go about the next day. Perhaps that's someone that, that could be you. Yet regardless of how we're wired, whether we know what the time will go off on our alarms, that we can attend to meetings on time, we know exactly when it's time to have our lunch, how long it's going to take us to digest that, we all have written down and ready-to-go plans, or perhaps even you have no plans, regardless of how you're wired, all of the things that happen tomorrow can be thwarted by outside factors. And so James is condemning us of our planning out our lives and having concern for the future. He's not condemning that we have a plan at all. Having a diary, setting goals, saving the future is not what James is rebuking. These are all good forms of wide stewardship. James is rebuking is the arrogance of the presumption that we are the master of our own lives. That's what James is challenging. The arrogance in our planning is the presumption that we are the master of our own lives. We speak to ourselves as if life were going our way, as if our choices were the only deciding factor, as if we had in ourselves what we exactly needed in order to make things a successful thing. Getting on, making money, doing well in life is the sole object of our lives. And so to not fall into this arrogance of presumption, we need to factor into our plans an open-handedness towards the will of God. A humility to let God be the captain of our lives. And we'll get back to this on how we can do this. But James points to another fact. He points to another thing that could make us arrogant. The arrogance of self-focus. Verse 14. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. As we plan out our lives, carefully working out our home lives, work lives, social lives, there's a danger that we think that all of those things, that we are the center of it all. James has already filled up another cup of water and he's ready to swing it into our faces and he says, what is your life? If someone has to write a biography of your life, what do you think your title would be? If a book publisher comes, I want to write a biography of your life, and, but you can come up with a title, what would it be? What, what do you think is the title that will sum up your whole life? It will sum up the greatest moments in your life, sum up all of your life achievements. James says that title is Mist. Splash! Another cold uh, cup of water in our faces. James hits us with another cold reality. We are mist. It's the same word that we've looked at in the book of Ecclesiastes. Mist is vapor. Mist is smoke. It means life is fleeting. It's short-lived. 
And so the tagline our biography titled Mist is, I'm arrogant, I'm fleeting, hear me roar. It's so humbling, it's so sobering. We are here for a little while and then we're gone. Yet we plan as if everything we do for ourselves is so terribly important. The arrogance of self-centeredness is thinking that our future revolves around us. And it shows in our plans and our calendars, but it's also expressed in our boasting. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. And James makes a very interesting choice of word. Schemes. God has a plan, but we really have a scheme. Its very definition is to plot in a devious way or have the wrong intent. Spiritually, whether we sense it consciously or unconsciously, don't we all scheme our way through life, don't we? To scheme to live for ourselves rather than to live out God's plan who created us, who purposed us, who has a plan for us. And that is why James says all such boasting is evil. It's evil because the plans that we may have are things that arrogantly disregards God. And so the humble way we live and plan our lives is to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And the thing is, I admit, a lot of Christians tend to throw this phrase around at the end of the sentence, almost like this protective superstition, don't we? We Christians, if it's the Lord's will, then we'll do this and do that. And really, I think it's almost like a Christianized superstition to really protect ourselves from disappointment, isn't it? If I don't get the job, well, it's not the Lord's will, it's okay. And so that we tend to think that the Lord's will is pivoting from one opportunity to the next. You think in terms of God closes one door to open another door. But following the Lord's will is not about being able to pivot or being flexible or agile. I don't think when we throw out that phrase, it's, it's not about this kind of agility about life. I think it goes more deeper than that. Following the Lord's will is not about the ability to pivot, but more about a posture towards the Lord's will. A steadfast posture of surrendering your life to live for God and His purposes. It's less about the short-term door and more about the long life path of following Jesus in his mission and plan for the world. John Calvin, the great reformer, notes that we read everywhere, let's be, we read everywhere in the scripture that the holy servants of God spoke unconditionally of future things when yet they had it as a fixed principle in their minds that they could do nothing without the permission of God. So that's a great reformer, John Calvin. Wilbur Wilberforce, the great pol Christian political reformer, said, if Christianity was true and meaningful, it must not only save, but serve. If Christianity was true and meaningful, it must not only save, but serve. I think the Apostle Paul says it best. 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which, prepared, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are to do God's work in all the work that we do. God already has a plan for us to do good works. Therefore, James says at the end of the passage, verse 17, if anyone then knows good, they ought to do it, and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. The Bible reference takes you to Luke 12, 47. There it says, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready, does not do what the master wants, will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. God has prepared good works for us to do. Jesus calls us to steward our time, talents, and possessions well, to do and serve his kingdom. See, the sin in our schedule is not the bad things we do, but the good things that we don't do. The sin in our schedules is not that the bad things that we plan in, but it's the good things that we don't have the time or energy or thought to plan in. It's the good things of being with God in prayer and listening to God through the Bible. It's the good things of meeting with God's people regularly. It's the good things of serving the people of God who has placed you uh, around you and it's all those good things of being godly faithful and effective in all the roles and responsibilities outside of our church community because all of life is a service to God and I think the best place to work all of this out is in community groups where you can discuss and help each other perceive and work out how is it that we are to do God's work in all kinds of work that we do and how we can consider and build God into our plans and schedules. See, really, the sermon applications happens after Sunday in your community groups. That's the purpose of community groups, to apply the teaching of the Bible to the specifics of your life situation. Where you want to land and end up at the end of your time in community group this week is not answer questions of whether James was talking to merchants who were Christian or not, or ask questions of the original meaning of the word scheming. They're great questions. They're great questions to start the Bible discussion, but not end with. Where you want to end and come to your community group with is to ask questions like, hey guys, I'm deciding to stay in my current job or to take another role. Help me to discern my motives and think through how can I best be serving God? How am I I be representing God in these roles that I'm considering? Or end up saying to your community group, hey, I've been really convicted that I've not been spending time in the presence of God. I really want to be with God. How do I get back into enjoying my Bible, reading that again? How do I rebuild my prayer life? Or look, there's an opportunity to serve in church or his wider kingdom. Is this the right season for me to take this on? How, how should I prioritize my time and energy? How can I be truly to, devoted to give this my best? 
or ask questions like, how can we as a community group be more involved in each of our lives? Or, hey, I really want to share that I, I've really neglected spending quality time with my spouse. Please pray for us as we try to get into a new routine. See, it's these kinds of conversations where the Bible can lead you to change and transformation. It is these kinds of conversations that keeps us from the most fundamental sin, which is to simply forget God as we go about our lives. So how does this work out in my life? So how does this practically work out in your life and in my life? Here are two points that you can take to your community group this week to discuss how it can be applied to you personally. The first is God's grace drives your life, not market forces, opportunities or challenges. God's grace drives your life, not market forces, opportunities or challenges. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by work, so that no one can boast. The reason why we are still standing here today is by grace. If God gave you what you deserved, you'll be wiped away. It is only by grace, by his will, that you are still living. And so God's grace drives and sustains your life and all that it entails. And so when you go to bid at an auction, remember there's demand, there's supply, and there's God's grace. What are you worried about? God is in charge of this. When you go to a job interview, there's your company, there's your competitors, and there's God's grace. God is in charge of this. When you get promoted to take a step of faith in the service of God, there's your bank account, there's your family, and there is God's grace. God is in charge of this. When things don't go out of your way, there's contingencies and buffers, and there's uncertainties and fears, and there's God's grace. God is in charge of this. All of life is by God's grace. And so when you say that, when you believe that, when that hits you in your heart, that takes you down your pride and it takes away your despair. Because you don't have to hold yourself up. God holds you up by his grace. Secondly, we are to be productive in the labor of love for others to God's glory. We are to be productive in the labor of love for others to God's glory. And this encompasses all that we do. But it's tricky because when we think about our everyday lives, we don't often think in terms of love. If you're writing a legal contract, you don't really think in terms of love. When you're creating a campaign, you don't think about in terms of love. When you open that spreadsheet, you don't really think in terms of love. Because we think to think about love in very abstract, overly sentimental, perhaps in romantic views of love. But the Bible's view of love is very, very concrete. To love is to do good for others. And so to do good works is to do whatever is good for another. It's not what will serve me, but what will serve them. It's not what's best for me, it's what's best for them. And Matt Parent, a book that I highly recommend, What's Best Next, uh, it's a great book on having an understanding of how biblical uh, theology and grace can fuel our approach to productivity 
and getting things done. So if you're a fan of GTD and getting things done, and if you've got lists and apps, this is a great book on how do you integrate your faith into those things. And he has six things on what it means to love others. Number one, have real goodwill towards the other person. Motivation and motives counts. Serving with a genuine concern for another rather than something to tick off and get it done as quickly as possible, as hassle-free as possible. Number two, put the other person first. Seeking to serve the others around their needs, serving in their preferences and their interests, not serving according to my convenience, my preferences, and my way of doing things. Number three, be eager to meet the needs of others, not begrudgingly and reluctant. It's something that we want to do, not have to do. The Apostle Paul teaches us to be zealous for good works. In Titus, he says, Jesus gave himself up for, to redeem us from the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Number four, be proactive, not reactive in doing good. Don't simply wait for someone to ask for help. Be proactive in offering help when you look for the opportunities to do good. Number five, avoid a self-protective mindset and takes pains to do good for others. We are to do good even if it requires sacrifice on our part. In doing so, we are imitating God. This means the Christian life involves risk. The Christian life involves cost that we freely take because God has taken the risk and cost to serve us. And number six, be creative and competent in doing good. Don't do a lazy and shoddy job because incompetence, half-heartedness, and perhaps tardiness does not serve people. It actually gives them more things to do. It stresses them out more, and so therefore it's not good work. Matt Pearson goes on to point out that we need to be creative because God is not simply a God of utility but also a God of creativity. He's a masterful designer. He's the designer of beauty. We are to go beyond merely doing work that accomplishes the minimum, but to go that extra mile, showing creativity and thoughtfulness. We are to have a sense of adventure and creativity in doing good works, to serve and work in a way where we actually get a kick out of doing good something that we're personally proud of, to have passion and excellence because that is the things that help make a work a good work. Shoddy work is not just shoddy work, it's a failure to love. So I'm going to close with a quote from Jonathan Edwards. As a principle love, the main principle in the heart of a real Christian, so the labor of love is the main business of the Christian life. Please join me and pray that we'll go on about our main business of our life. Heavenly Father, it's hard to be humble before you, but help us to see it, it's a relief that we can humbly not be the master of our lives. Because that's stressful, that's very anxious, very worrisome, 
but we can have great comfort and relief and confidence that whatever comes tomorrow, it comes by your hands. And Father, help us to see that you are a good God who loves us. And so, Father, we pray that we'll go about our main business of life, which is a labor of love, aligned to your mission, aligned to your purposes in all that we do. Father, help us to seek the best for others, whether it's at work on Monday, whether it's at home on Monday evening. In all that we do, help our week be a labor of love to your glory, in your name, Jesus, amen.